Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. And this will, in fact, be the last time we look at the book of Deuteronomy. The very last sermon to be preached, we'll be looking at chapter 32, verses 48 through 52, and then all of chapter 34, and that is verses 1 through 12. So again, that's 32, 48 to 52, and 34, verses 1 to 12. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me, among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the, land, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there, into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Lord, as we see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, 
the great servant of the Lord, Moses, is unable to cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land. He dies on the other side. Lord, may it be that you would help us to turn to your son, the Lord Jesus, who is the one who can cross over and who does, in fact, lead all those who trust in him into that great and blessed land. May it be, O Lord, that you would open our eyes even as we see the death of Moses and his inability to go into the land, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. For we ask all this in his name. Amen. Throughout the history of redemption, God has raised up many great leaders to work great acts of redemption for the sake of his people. And all of these, in one way or another, were meant to show what Christ himself would do, what the final Savior would do, what the Messiah, the promised one, would in fact do. And yet, even though there were all these great things that happened, there were great deliverances uh, that were accomplished through these people, there are little hints given with every single leader in the Old Testament that there is something more that is coming. And the, one of the ways in which we see that they, these hints are, are given is because nobody in the Old Testament is, is really able to accomplish the thing that God calls them to. They're never able fully to accomplish the thing to which they were called. This is not just true of Moses, it's true of all the leaders uh, in the Old Testament, but it is true even of Moses. Here we have the death recorded at the very end of Deuteronomy of the greatest leader, the greatest prophet that the Old Testament saints would ever see. And he did not get to go into the promised land. He does not even get to have his body carried into the promised land like Joseph or Jacob. He dies and remains on the other side of the promised land, on the other side of the Jordan, to the east, awaiting, awaiting the redemption that would have to be accomplished by another. And though, as we'll see, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the end of chapter 32 as well, Moses is highly honored, highly honored as a prophet, such that as we see at the end of Deuteronomy 34, never would there ever be another prophet like Moses. Yet, this, even this one, was unable to go into the land himself. This is what we see particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, before we get into the text, there's one question that we have to, to answer regarding Deuteronomy 34, and that is regarding the authorship. Uh, who wrote Deuteronomy chapter 34? Uh, this is an important question because uh, there are many people who will deny that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And part of the arguments are, well, you know, Deuteronomy 34, how could Moses ever have written about his death when, uh, when he was still alive? He obviously could not have written uh, about that. What are we to think? Are we to say that Moses could not have written Deuteronomy 34, or that he, if he did write Deuteronomy 34, that maybe there are other things that Moses did not write? Uh, the answer to that is, uh, is a little bit complicated, but the, but the simple way to explain it is this. Uh, if we were to say, and we actually need to say, that Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34, if we were to say that Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34, this does not mean that Moses did not write all the rest of the Pentateuch. And if Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34, this does not mean that we would say that Moses is not the author of the Pentateuch. Uh, if somebody comes and adds on 12 very short verses at the end of a book that was written 100% by another author, namely Moses himself, uh, then we would have to say 
that, that, that the book of Deuteronomy is in fact still written by Moses. And there is actually one very good reason, an important reason, why we actually must maintain that Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34, and that is given in verse 10. Notice verse 10 uh, really quickly, and this will uh, be important for us to understand the, the text as, as it's given. Notice what verse 10 says, but since then, since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the idea is Moses dies, then there is someone who is writing Deuteronomy chapter 34, and he is saying, from the time that Moses died until my perspective now, which there had to been some amount of time that's elapsed, there has never arisen a prophet like Moses. It's important for us to maintain that because one of the things that was promised in Deuteronomy 18 is that there would be a prophet like Moses who would be raised up. And what the author of Deuteronomy 34 is saying, particularly in verse 10, is there has now been a long time that has elapsed and we have never seen a prophet. He has in fact never come. We are still the single prophet like Moses. It proves, for instance, that Joshua is not the prophet like Moses. Joshua is like Moses in a number of ways, and something we're, we're going to see. There's in some sense in which there's the anticipation that Joshua is going to succeed Moses. He will succeed Moses in some ways, but he is not the prophet like Moses, as verse 10 declares. And there is even a long line of prophets that have come after Joshua, and none of them are like Moses. None of them are like Moses. And the reason for that is because the only one who will ever be the prophet like Moses is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verse 10 presupposes that some amount of time has elapsed and verse 10 builds on the expectation of a savior to come in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So it's important for us to maintain uh, that perspective that there actually had to have been some amount of time that elapsed in order for the statement to be significant, that there's never arisen a prophet like Moses. If Moses wrote it, then there's no, there's, there's no time that's elapsed, and so it's not a significant statement that no one's arisen uh, like Moses since Moses had just, in fact, died. Now, there is a lot of evidence that Moses did, in fact, write the rest of the Pentateuch, and particularly the book of Deuteronomy. You think of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27, which we looked at uh, not too long ago, where, uh, where Moses says that all the words of the book of the law are to be written on the stones. This, this seems to imply that the entire book of Deuteronomy was, in fact, written. This would be, of course, minus chapter 34. Uh, Moses is then recorded as having finished the entire book of the law, and that's at the end of chapter 31, and that even comes after Moses finishes uh, teaching the, to the people of God the contents of the song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So therefore, you have at least, at the very least, all of Ch Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 32, the only other chapter being 33. So there's no reason to think that Deuteronomy 33 was not given as well. And so we have uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31 seems to be a direct statement that Moses did, in fact, write uh, all of Deuteronomy, except for, of course, chapter 34. And then also, we have uh, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 8, reads uh, all of the book, the entire book of the law of Moses, as the people of God cross over. The implication there seems to be that Joshua had the book of the law, and that he was able, therefore, uh, to read it to the people of God. Uh, one of the things that we see all throughout the Old Testament, and this is, again, one of the reasons why uh, we've spent so long going through the book of Deuteronomy, is that, is that all of the Old Testament books, all the Old Testament prophets presuppose the book of Moses. And this is very, very clear. All the Old Testament prophets uh, presuppose all the contents of the, all the books of the Pentateuch. They presuppose it. Moses is clearly foundational. And so Moses is, in fact, the true author. And yet the point of this little postscript in Deuteronomy chapter 34 is to show that as great as Moses was, he was, in fact, unable 
to bring the people of God into the land. And therefore, we are still awaiting the final and great Savior. Deuteronomy, as a book, the very last book of the Pentateuch, leaves us purposefully looking forward to another, purposely looking forward to one who will come and will be able to do what Moses could not do, which is bring the people of God into the promised land, to bring them back to God. They are waiting for the prophet like Moses, who would, in fact, accomplish all these things. And so Moses' failure, his inability to enter the land, highlights this very thing. Now, we'll look at this passage under three headings. We'll consider, uh, first, Moses' glimpse of the land. It's commanded in in Deuteronomy 32, verses 48 through 52, and then it's recorded in verses uh, 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy 34. Then we have Moses' death. It would be the second point we look at this passage under in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 8. And then we'll look at Moses' succession. The very last thing that's said in the book of Deuteronomy concerns the succession of Moses. What is going to come after uh, Moses? It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in through 12. Consider then uh, the end of chapter 32 and also uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. Uh, notice this is really, again, two parts. Really, this, this all goes together. Uh, there's basically the, the, structurally, there's the interruption of the blessings which are given in Deuteronomy chapter 33. So the, the idea seems to be that Moses' very last words were, in fact, these words of blessing. And there was already the instructions for him to die in Deuteronomy 32. And then at some point, there is a, a relating of uh, Moses actually uh, obeying this and then dying and then the succession given in 34. And so, so uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 48 to 52, really reads seamlessly with Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 4. And again, chapter 32, verses 48 to 52, highlights the command for Moses to go up the mountain, to see all the land, and then to die. And then it's actually recorded that he does this in Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 uh, to 4. Now, in, in uh, the command to go up, Moses is told to go up to Mount Nebo, which was um, probably the highest peak, the most prominent peak in the range of Pisgah. This would have been to the east of the Jordan, still in Moab. So it's, Moses was never able to cross over the Jordan. And again, the, the, the thing that's highlighted at the end of Deuteronomy 32 with regard to the reason why he's unable to cross over, and this is something we've seen over and over again in Deuteronomy. We particularly saw this uh, in Deuteronomy uh, chapters 1 through 4. Uh, Moses was highlighting the reasons why he was unable to cross over the Jordan, of course, because of his disobedience. And this is, again, what what God says. You are not able to cross over the Jordan because of your disobedience. You did not sanctify me among the people at the waters of Meribah at Kadesh, and therefore you will not be able to cross over this Jordan, but you will die on the other side. And it appears that as something of a consolation, God was going to allow Moses here at the very end of his life to to take a glimpse of the land. He gets to see the land from a distance, and then he must die. He must die, having never been able to to cross uh, over that land. Now again, verses 1 through 4 then of Deuteronomy 34 actually record Moses doing this. So, you know, he goes up Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, Pisgah being the the range, and then he, he sees the land. Now, the way the land is described is very interesting. And this, again, is one of the other hints that um, this is recorded sometime after, because the land is described as if it's already been distributed. So he gets to see 
the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Dan would have only been called Dan once it was distributed to, to, to Dan himself. Naphtali is, of course, one of the tribes as well. So, so uh, he sees the land, and it's recorded of, as, uh, of him seeing the land as if it's already been divided. All the tribes have already received their allotted inheritance, but Moses does not get to do it. So it, there's this contrast that's, that's implied here. Others are getting to benefit, but Moses himself was unable to do it. He sees the land that all the people are going to get to enjoy, but he himself will partake of none of it. Now, the way that this description works is it's, it's basically like a, almost like a counterclockwise des- description. So as if Moses were uh, looking north, so to speak, from the east side of the Jordan, and then he's slowly turning towards the, towards the west and then finally to the south to see the land that the people of God would, would in fact take and that would be distributed to them. He sees the land. God then declares in verse 4, this is the land I'm going to give. And yet Moses gets to enjoy none of it. He gets to enjoy none of it. This is the great shortcoming of Moses. And, and it is significant, brothers and sisters, again, as we consider that everything else in the record of Moses' death is positive concerning him. Everything that's not related to him failing to cross the Jordan is positive. He is, again, without question, the greatest Old Testament prophet that the, that the people of God would ever see. And that's even highlighted at the end of the text, which makes his failure to come into the land all the more significant. And so he dies on the east side of the Jordan. He dies on the east side of the Jordan. That death is recorded then for us in verses 5 through 8. The summary of Moses' death is given. So he's in verse 5. He is, it says just simply that he died there in the land of Moab. Now notice as well in verse 6, and this again shows the, the great honor that is paid to Moses, uniquely great honor that is paid to Moses in his death. Notice there is a singular person who buries Moses in the valley of in, in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beit Peor. Now Beit Peor was was a place close to where the people of God were there in the land of Moab. It's close to where the people of God are going to cross over the Jordan. But, but it's not that they buried him. In fact, none of the people know where he's buried. A singular individual buries him, and that is the Lord himself. The Lord himself buries Moses in a place that no one knows in honoring Moses. And uh, part of what this does, too, is it guarantees, even as it is honoring Moses, it also guarantees that nobody will ever be able to bring Moses' body into the land. Now, remember, this was something that was highly significant. At the end of Genesis, Jacob demands that he be buried and that he be buried in the land of Canaan. He be buried in the promised land. I know that this is where God is. I know that this is where the God of the living is. I want to be buried where the God of the living is. And Joseph does something similar. He says he wants to be brought up into the, the, into the land of Canaan as well. And this is actually accomplished with the Exodus. So Joshua actually is the one who brings Joseph's bones into the promised land. So Jacob and Joshua both get to go from Egypt all the way, even in their death, all the way into the land of Canaan. But Moses, who dies on the edge of the land of Canaan, he does not get, he does not get to go in himself. And even in his burial, he is, he is unable to have anyone bring him across the Jordan and bury him in the promised land. He must die and be buried in a place where nobody knows on the east side of the Jordan. Nobody knows where he is buried. That's what it says in verse 6. Then in verse 7, notice uh, the age of Moses at his death is given. And it says that he was, in fact, in full strength. 
So he's 120 years old, the God greatly blessing him because of, of his greatness as a prophet, blessing him with long life as a, uh, a subtle pointer to the reality of eternal life for all those who trust in, uh, in the true God. And then notice the statement, even with regarding to his strength, in his old age, he kept his vigor, his eyes did not grow dim. It shows once again, his failure to cross over the Jordan had nothing to do with his strength. He would have been able to cross over, except that, Moses, that God had commanded that Moses die on the east side. He would have been able to cross over. There would have been no, nothing that would have prevented him. Even at 120, he would have been able to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And so then the people of God then mourn for him, as is recorded in verse 8, for 30 days, showing that, again, the love for the, uh, Moses that the people had. Uh, Moses, in every way, is the, 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 the great respected leader, and yet he dies on the east side of the Jordan, never being able to cross over into the promised land. Now, as I mentioned, the thing that is highlighted all throughout the scriptures is that the people of God and their leaders, they never, the, the leaders particularly, never ever are able to accomplish fully the thing they set out to achieve. And this is important to note with, with regard to Moses and the Exodus. You know, the Exodus is not, is not just about being brought out of Egypt. We see this from Exodus chapter 15. The goal of the Exodus is not just out of Egypt. It's out of Egypt into the promised land. Those two were always meant to be one thing, one unit event. And Moses can bring them out, but he could not bring them in. He could not fully accomplish the exodus as it was planned out and as was God's purpose. He has to leave that task to another because in some ways he falls short. And again, this is the true of every single leader in the Old Testament. You think going all the way back to Noah. Noah is named Noah because there is an expectation that he would finally be the one who would give relief from the curse of the ground. He would be the one who would undo the curse, the implication there being that he would also be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And yet he is not. He himself is able to be delivered through the flood. And yet, right immediately after they, he and his family gets out, out of the ark, there is immediately sin. And uh, Noah shows himself clearly to be the one who is unable to bring about the true new creation. We see this with the patriarchs as well. They believe the promises of God, and yet they are unable to acquire anything in the promised land except a burial plot. They're unable to, uh, to acquire any land in the promised land. Joshua, you think of Joshua, the one who succeeded Moses, he can take the land that, that Moses could not in this sense, and yet he could not drive out all the nations. We see this at the end of the book of Joshua. There are many nations that, that would not yield to the Israelites in subjection and that they could not, in fact, overcome and defeat. The judges, same thing. They give deliverance to Israel for a time, but they themselves sin in various ways. The deliverance is always short-lived and the people of God go back to their sins. David then comes as the man after God's own heart. You think, you know, at the end of the book of Judges, that the statement is, in those days there was no king, therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now we have the godly king, the, the king that we need. Now, finally, this will be the one who will who will establish righteousness in the land. And yet David sins. He's not able to build the house of God as he so intended. And God tells him that the sword will not depart from his house. Then you think Solomon, well, Solomon, his son, he's the one who does build the house. Surely, surely he's going to be the one that's going to establish this new kingdom of righteousness. And yet he sins, turns to idols and to foreign women. And the kingdom that was so strong and mighty is immediately removed in the very next generation. 
in, by, uh, in his son, Rehoboam. Then you think of uh, perhaps now there's going to be this restoration. The, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to uh, reunite these divided kingdoms. It's one of the promises that came in, in the prophets. You see Hezekiah and Josiah who give glimpses of this, that they have Passovers where the north and the south are celebrating this together. And you think now, now finally the kingdom is going to be restored. The Messiah is going to come. And yet both of them sin in their own ways. And Josiah, less than you know, 40 years since Josiah, after Josiah's death, the people of God go into exile. All of these leaders are unable to accomplish the thing that they set out to do. There are little glimpses that teach us something about what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do, and yet they themselves could not accomplish it. You think even in exile, Joshua and Zerubbabel bring the people of God back from exile, and you think, okay, now finally is the fulfillment of what Moses had promised even in Deuteronomy 30, the fulfillment of the return to exile under the the hand of the Messiah. And yet, Joshua and Zerubbabel are unable to accomplish a true return from exile. The, the temple cannot be built for some time. When it's built, it's built pitifully. The people of God continue in their sins. The glory does not return to the temple. Then you think, well, maybe if we just had a teacher who could teach us the law of God. Ezra returns to the, to the exiles, and yet he cannot inscribe the law of God on the, people, on the people's hearts, and they remain in their sins. There's a, a long history from Noah all the way to Ezra, from one end of redemptive history in the Old Testament all the way to the other, of leaders, and none of them, none of them are able to accomplish what they set out to do ultimately. There are, there's always something great that they're able to do, but yet the people of God remain in a state of expectation because all of them in one way or another fail. And what this does is it shows Noah comes and he does not give rest from the curse. He does not really give rest from the curse, and therefore we expect another. And David comes, and yet the people of God are still sinning. That means we are are expecting another righteous king who will promote righteousness in the land. And brothers and sisters, the point of all of these examples is to look forward to the one who would truly accomplish all these things, and the one who accomplishes all of them is the Lord Jesus Christ. As you think of Noah and giving, giving rest, Jesus is the one who gives the true rest from all of our labors. He is the one who comes and says, come to me all you who are heavy laden and weary and I will give you rest, the rest that Noah could not give. Uh, Christ as the one who is the, the son of God has by the right of sonship, the right to inherit all the, the earth, what, the, what the, the patriarchs could not inherit, Christ inherits as the son. Where Joshua could not bring all the nations into subjection, Christ brings the entire world into subjection to him, not by destruction, but by conversion, showing that he far surpasses even what Joshua was trying to do. Christ is the one who rules and defends his people as the judge of all the earth, giving the permanent deliverance from all of our enemies that the judges never could. Christ is the the one who is the true king after God's own heart, who has inherited the throne of his father David, not just for a time, but for all time because he is the one who always lives as the king of kings. Christ is the one who's built the true house of God, not the one that Solomon built with all of its weaknesses, but by the incarnation, he is now even building us up as a true house for God himself. Christ is the one who who has accomplished the true restoration of the nation of Israel, cleansing the people from all of their sins and uniting all back in himself. Christ is the one who has accomplished the true return from exile that Joshua and Zerubbabel never could, bringing all those who turn to Christ, not just back to a particular land, 
but back to God himself. And Christ is the true teacher of the law who does not just explain the law to his people, but writes it on the hearts of his people that they might in fact be righteous and they might in fact love God. Christ is the one who always fulfills all the things that all the rulers of Israel, all their leaders could never accomplish. And here what we see is Moses is unable, he's unable to deliver the people into the promised land. Christ, though, is the one who does just this, not bringing the people of God into a type of the final land, but the one who is able to bring back the people of God from their exile, away from the presence of God, into the new heavens and the new earth, where we will dwell with God forever. And Christ, being so far from being excluded from Uh, being able to cross over into that land is the one who by his resurrection even now already experiences the blessings of the presence of God that we ourselves will experience on the last day. Christ is the one who goes before us into the land to bring us into it. He so far surpassing Moses. Christ is the one who succeeds where Moses fails. And so the question that's left at the end of the book of Deuteronomy is this. If Moses, if not Moses, then who? If not Moses, then who is actually able to bring us into the promised land? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why at the end of the book of Deuteronomy here, the last four verses, after the record of, the, uh, of Moses glimpsing the promised land but dying on the east side of the Jordan, why the very last thing that's said is are things concerning the succession of Moses. The point of the book of Deuteronomy, the way it ends, is that we must not rest in what Moses did, but we must look to the Savior who is coming. And so now there are two things that are said with regard to the succession of Moses. And that's verse 9, the immediate successor of Moses, who is Joshua. And then verse 10 to 12, the expectation of a future successor of Moses who has not yet come, who has not yet come for even some amount of time, as as we've said. So now there, there are two things that are being highlighted here then. Uh, Moses in some, or Joshua in some ways is like Moses. There is something similar between Joshua and Moses. Notice that all the people of God, particularly in verse 9, are going to obey Joshua just like they did Moses. And just as Moses parted the Red Sea, so Joshua is going to part the Jordan River as the people of God go in. There is some correspondence between Moses and Joshua. And yet, verses 10 and 12 make it very clear. Even Joshua was not like Moses. He was not like Moses, and nobody else, in fact, would be like Moses. Now, a few things to point out here about verse 9 in particular. Notice, Joshua is said to be uh, the one who uh, will succeed Moses because he's full of the spirit of wisdom. And we know that he's full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. This is another way in which Moses was quite unique, in which Moses was uh, someone who was uh, quite special in terms of the Old Testament, that Moses could lay his hands on a person and that person could receive the Holy Spirit. This was quite a rare uh, gift to be given in uh, not just the Old Testament, but in in all Testaments, in both the Old and the New Testament. There is something similar that happens with the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they can bless, and their blessing is something of a prophecy that's going to come true. Uh, There's there's some ways in which the the blessings of the patriarchs end up being effectual. Uh, Similarly, Moses can... uh, give the gifts of the Spirit in ways that many others will not be able to. Joshua certainly can't. Nobody else can uh, in the Old Testament. Um, You see this, for instance, in Numbers chapter 11, 
where the way in which um, God helps Moses bear the burden of leadership is he says he's going to take from the spirit of Moses and put it on others who are going to rule with him. So the idea is that, that the spirit is communicated uh, through Moses to the people is the, is the idea. There's something similar that happens with the apostles in the New Testament. Very, very unique. The apostles can lay their hands on people in the New Testament and the gifts of the spirit are given through the laying on of hands. Does not happen through anyone else in the New Testament. No other prophets, no other evangelists, no other pastors receive this. It doesn't, it's not a gift that continues. It's only given uh, by the apostles. It was very, very unique. You think of not even, not even Elijah. You think of all the great things that Elijah was able to do. Elijah was not able to do this. Elisha asked Elijah right before he was taken up for a double portion of, of the spirit. And Elijah says, well, you know, the thing that you ask is very, very difficult. I can't just give that to you, but I can pray and maybe God will grant it to you. God did, in fact, grant it, but Elijah clearly did not have the kind of authority just to lay his hands on people and to communicate the Spirit. Now, Christ, Christ is one who far surpasses Moses even in this. For Christ is the one who pours out the Spirit on every single person who has ever received the Spirit. He is the one who pours out the Spirit in a manner that's even far above the apostles, far above Moses himself. And so Christ, even we see Christ's superiority to Moses, even in the way in which Moses succeeds, uh, causes Joshua to be his successor. Now, uh, that's, the, that's what we see in verse 9 with regard to Joshua. Joshua is the one who succeeds Moses because Moses had laid his hands on him and he had, in fact, received the Spirit. The true one who, who pours out the Spirit on his people, though, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, the purpose in verses 10 to 12 is to say this. Though Joshua succeeds Moses in some way, no one really succeeds Moses. No one succeeds Moses. Certainly, as we just mentioned, Joshua cannot pour out the Spirit in the way that Moses could. And there are a number of other things that Joshua could not do. For instance, Joshua did not know God face to face, and Joshua did not do the kind of signs and wonders that Moses did. And these are really the two things that, that are highlighted here at the end. What are the, the, the two things that distinguish Moses from any other prophet or any other leader in the Old Testament? And they are these. Moses knew God in a way that no other prophet would ever know God. And then secondly, Moses did signs and wonders that no other prophet would ever do. Those are the two ways in which Moses as a prophet was far greater than others. Now, we, we've seen this. This has actually already been declared with regard to Moses knowing others face to face. Uh, we're told in Numbers chapter 12 that when God wants to speak to others by his prophets, he will speak in dreams and visions. That was a normal mode of communication, uh, communicating to uh, prophets. But with Moses, he says, I speak face to face. So there's already this superiority of Moses, and we see this all the way throughout the Old Testament. Nobody has the kind of privilege that Moses had to be able to speak to God face to face. Even Isaiah sees visions of God. He does not see God face to face in the same way. Even Ezekiel sees visions of God but it was Moses who spoke with him face to face. Now, Christ shows himself to be the one who is like Moses and even better than Moses in the, by the fact that he is the one who is God himself in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, who knows the Father in that way uh, as the Son himself, who knows in that sense the Father exhaustively. That is the way in which uh, Christ uh, knows God the Father, and thus he far surpasses Moses in knowing God face to face. Now, the second way, notice the second thing that is said. 
the signs and wonders first done to Pharaoh and all the signs and wonders done in the sight of Israel, uh, verse 12. So there, there are those who were done against the enemies of God's people and those who were done for the benefit uh, of God's people. And Moses did things that no one else had ever done in, in either regard. Nobody else had ever worked the kinds of signs and wonders that Moses did and nobody ever would. You think of even, again, going back to Elijah and Elisha, they did many, many signs. But just think of just comparing them for just a moment, the difference between Moses' signs and Elijah and Elisha's. They were able to do many, many signs. But Ahab was the wicked king who was alive in the days of Elijah. And Elijah could not defeat and lay low even Ahab. He had to run for his life from, from Ahab. Now, there were signs and wonders that showed that he was in, that God was superior to the God of Ahab. And yet, and yet he didn't del- make this great deliverance from, the, uh, from a foreign power like Moses did. The people of God at the beginning of Elijah's life were under the power of, of a wicked king who even claimed to know God. And at the end of his life, they were still under the power of a wicked king who claimed to know God. This was, uh, this was the way that Elijah and Elisha both operated. They were far inferior to Moses in regards to the signs and wonders that they did. But brothers and sisters, then consider that the comparison then to Christ. Christ is is so far from being inferior to Moses in this that he actually far surpasses him, such that, as we've seen, particularly if we consider the way this works with Matthew chapters 8 and 9, that Christ did many, many signs, which people said, None of this, nothing like this has ever happened or ever even been heard of. Even by Moses is the idea. Christ did many things that even Moses had never done. And then even after doing these signs and wonders to prove who he is, he then worked in even greater wonder by defeating not just Pharaoh, an earthly king, but by defeating death itself and thereby defeating sin and Satan showing that he is the one who is now far, far superior to Moses, having accomplished uh, far greater signs against all the enemies of God's people and doing far greater wonders for the sake of God's people. He then is, is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he then pours out the Spirit on all flesh, causing even greater signs to be done for the benefit of all of God's people, working a great salvation such that the people of God are not just brought out in one generation from a foreign power, but that all the people of God in all time are liberated from bondage to sin. And not just a small people from one nation, but in all nations and in all ages, the Lord Jesus Christ has worked all these great wonders for all of his people. This is the way in which uh, Christ, even though we can say, in very many ways we can say, there has never been a prophet like Moses from the time of Moses all the way to the coming of Christ. Once the Lord Jesus Christ has come, we can say, now, truly, we have received the prophet like Moses. The book of Deuteronomy ends with this question. When will the prophet like Moses appear? And the book of Deuteronomy ends with this statement. We expect him to come at some point. We have waited a long time and we have not seen him. What will this person do? What will he be like? Will will there be a leader who will be able to do what Moses could not do? Not dying on the east side of the Jordan, but bringing the people into the land. And the answer to that question is yes, there is one who can do it. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the great prophet who is like Moses, who though he died, yet was raised from the dead, who now experiences all the joys 
of the promised land of heaven now and who guarantees that he will grant all of this to his people, the one who has already crossed over the Jordan into that promised land. And brothers and sisters, the, 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 the point of this comparison is then to say this, if you have your hope in this Lord, if you have your hope in this Lord, this great prophet, you will most assuredly cross over the Jordan. You will most assuredly cross over the Jordan. He is superior to Moses. He will not leave you on the east side of the Jordan. He himself is already in the west side of the Jordan. And if you are in him, you have actually already crossed over yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great prophet like Moses. Lord, as we think of these last statements of the book of Deuteronomy, these last statements spoken in the wilderness uh, by a, uh, in a, a context where the people of God are waiting for a further redemption, and we think of all the longing and waiting for your people uh, centuries after this, always waiting for that great Savior. How we do thank you that we are living in these times where the end of the ages have come, where the Lord Jesus Christ has been made manifest from heaven, where we do know, in fact, the true successor of Moses, the one who, as the author to the Hebrews says, is far superior to Moses. For Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over the house as a son. Help us, O Lord, to be those who submit ourselves to him. And may it be, Lord, that even as he is called the great prophet, that we would heed the voice that was born from heaven, your own testimony, O Father, concerning your son, that we would listen to him, that we would listen to him, for he is your beloved son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.